All right. Let me uh, ask you to take a copy of God's Word, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to book of Isaiah and chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 10 through 20. And as you're getting there, I'm sorry if you're using one of our Bibles, I don't have a page number for you. Um, but if you're using your own copy of God's Word, as you're getting there, I kind of want us to give us a roadmap of where we've been, right? We, we talked about worship and we said that we weren't going to talk about worship extensively. This is not everything the Bible has to teach about worship. This series has just given us a framework of what worship means biblically. And so we're walking through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and, and learning key passages about worship so that we can know how to be true worshipers of God. In the first week, we saw the first worship ever being known to man, worship service ever being known to man, which was Abel and Cain, who came to God and worship. And we talked about how God values the attitude that you have. Faithful worship is what I should have named it. I said worship attitude. Now I'm thinking about it. It should be worship, faith, faithful worship uh, should have been the title of that. But worship has to be brought to God and faith and believing in Him is the first thing that we saw. And then we saw last week from Deuteronomy chapter 12 how worship is to be uh, given to God in a way that is on His terms. Um, and then we saw the people of Israel get, being given uh, uh, an instruction by God on how to worship God. And you know the story, if you have read your Old Testament. Israel goes into the, to the promised land and they squander it. And they start worshiping everything else but God or Everything else with God. And God judges them and he punishes them and he continues to send them messengers, who we call prophets, to remind them of how they ought to worship. And he reminds them their, what their conduct is as well. And this is where we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah this morning. As Isaiah the prophet writes, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says Yahweh. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation, I could not endure wickedness and the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So wash yourselves and purify yourselves. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Execute justice for the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes so that we may see the wondrous things that are in this word, in this word that we read. Teach our souls. Teach our heart what it means by the power of your spirit for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I haven't done a, a statistic introduction in a while, so we were due for one, I felt. So here's a statistic I, I was looking at, a Barna research that was done, I want to say about 20 years ago, showed about 93% of U.S. household owned the Bible. And 60% of those 93%, so those, those of you that are math whiz, you, you can tell me what, how many of those that is, claim to be religious. But you wouldn't know it by the way that they lived. And that same study shows that there's one Protestant church or evangelical church for 550 Americans. But 62% of that research say those people that have taken that research say that the church is not relevant nor has any influence in society today. And there's enough activity and claims to appear Christians. Obviously, this is what we see, right? There's enough activity, enough to say, hey, we appear to be Christians. We own Bibles. We appear, we, we say that we're, we're religious and there's enough churches for, I mean, you, you just got to go down, up and down Franconia and then see how many churches there are, right? Franconia Road is like church central. I think I counted like 12, including the one that meets at the high school every Sunday. 12 churches. I don't know, maybe that stretches three or four miles. So there's enough activity and there's enough claims to appear like we're Christians who believe in the inerrant word of God. But in reality, if we're really honest, we're trying to synchronize worship of God with whatever the world has to offer trying to mix the world with Christ worship.
and has taken a foothold in our church. Because we're focused on what is relevant and not what is true. So here in this passage, we'll see what God's verdict is regarding compromised worship or impure worship and his instructions on pure worship. But before looking at what his verdict is regarding impure worship and what his instructions are for pure worship, I want us to pay attention to a couple of things to take notice. Look down to verse 10 with me. This is Hebrew poetry, and it's, it's really unique the way that he, he, the Hebrew um, poetry works. And notice how the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, is the first line in that poem. And then look at the third line with me. The word of Yahweh is paralleled with the law or the instruction of our God. So God's word is the instruction that we need. But also notice our response in that. Hear and give ear. Hear, if you hear God's word, and if you pay attention to his instruction you will be able to understand and give pure worship. So don't tune out. This is what Isaiah proclaims, by the way. He says, hey, at the outset, before I say anything, hear God's word, hear his instruction, don't fall asleep, pay attention. Pay attention. And when you read the rest of Isaiah, especially in Isaiah chapter 6, God actually, because the people reject this, God says, hearing they will not hear, seeing they will not see. It's almost like having ears, and, but they, they don't work. It's almost like having eyes that are open, but you can't see what's right in front of you. And God judges them that way. So I want us to really consider what we're talking about today. Is God's word and his instruction on how he desires to be worshipped and how, what his verdict is about impure worship. So God's verdict regarding his people's impure worship is we find that in verses 11 through 15. And he starts off by asking two questions. What and who? Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me again? He asks his people. And then verse 12. Who requires you? Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Like, what are you doing? And who asked you to do it? That's what God is asking his people. Why? Because his people have multiplied sacrifices and sacrificial worship to the extent that he didn't even require them. They have begun to, to give plenty of bulls. I mean, we see that in the second part of verse 11. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of ram, rams, uh, cattle that are the fat of the cattle, uh, bulls, lambs, goats. I mean, they, they're bringing all this stuff up to him. And not just some, they're giving him plenty. And you would think, why is God asking that question? Isn't that what he desired anyways? What they're doing is they're, they're bringing a bunch of it more than he even required. He says, I've had enough of it. Even though it's plenty, it's not sufficient. Even though you bring in a lot more than what I even ask you, even though you're superseding the quota, it's not sufficient. I've had enough. I've seen enough. In fact, he says, I don't know what it is. I can't comprehend it. I'm not pleased by it. I'm not satisfied by it. Because you bring a bunch of sacrifices to me, because of the numbers of your sacrifices, I'm supposed to just jump up and, and do you a favor? That's not what I want, is what God is telling them. In fact, who asked you to do this? Show me where in the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Numbers in the book of the law, show me where I said to bring me more than I required you. Who required you? Who told you to come in my presence, by the way? Here's, uh, look at verse 20, uh, 12. When you come to appear before me. That's worship, guys. When we come to worship together, when Israel came, they're coming into the presence of God. They're not coming to just like kind of just sit there. And I, and I really wanted, I was sharing with a couple of brothers on Friday, I wanted AI to, to, to recreate that scene. And I, I'm not technically savvy. Um, that scene of what worship would have looked like for Israel in the time of Isaiah. Like we're sitting in a nice, well-lit, comfortable, air-conditioned, like stomach full and everything else for worship, right? And we think that's how worship for them looked like. Worship for them, what God is talking about here, the blood of rams, and the, it's like a slaughterhouse. Like the scene, if you would just allow me to digress, the scene of worship that God is talking about is like a bunch of bulls and cows and, and, and rams and, and, and sheep and lambs and goats and anything else, birds, they're being slaughtered. Like there's, it's a bloody scene. There is so much blood, they had to design like an intricate like plumbing system, a drainage system, kind of like what, what the construction crews are doing on the roads when, when you drive by. They have to dig and they have, they have the underground tunnel. Like for the, for the amount of blood. And then all of that has to be put up and burnt. Imagine the smoke. Right? It's not even like... Think of a, a summer barbecue, right? It's not seasoned though. You're just throwing it up there. 
bunch of smoke, bunch of blood. People are killing something over here and then they're skinning it alive. And there's, there's a distinct smell. So when you think of worship, this is the scene that, 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 that's happening. There's blood everywhere. And they're doing it even more than what God has asked them to. And he says, I don't recognize it. Because they understand to come in front of God, to be in the presence of God, who is holy, 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 as Isaiah would tell us in, in chapter 6, requires, like, I'm too guilty. It requires some kind of blood, without the, the way that we read it in, in Hebrews chapter 9, in our scripture reading. Without blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. So I have to present him, I have to come before him with this kind of gift in my hand to satisfy him. Because they know who they're coming to see. They're coming to his presence. They don't just walk up to God and be like, yo, what's up? His presence requires something. And he says, when you come into my presence, why are you walking all over me? Why are you trampling? Who asked you to trample in my courts like that? You come with these gifts, these sacrifices, but you're disregarding to do what I said to do because of the multiplied gifts and burnt offerings and sacrifices. In verses 13 and 14, he tells them, you know what? Stop it. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. That's verse 13. That's how it starts. Don't come in my presence with your little gifts and your sacrifices. And he calls it what? Worthless. Vain, empty, meaningless. I mean, imagine being one of those people that are hearing this. And you just, like, for the entire year, you fed this lamb the best food that it can, you can afford. Fattened it up real, real nice. And you're like, all right, I need to be forgiven of my sin. And you bring this, and God says, that's vanity, man. Like, that's meaningless. Stop bringing those kinds of gifts and offerings to me. And look at what he says. Incense is an abomination to me. When you think of incense, what do you think? Something that smells good, right? Chanel number five. Right? It smells good. Incense is supposed to smell good. God says that whatever you think smell is supposed to smell good and have a good aroma, it actually disgusts me. Stinks. And I mean, imagine the play on words, right? This is this is the beauty of poetry. Right? It paints a picture. Like, these people know what worship looks like. It's a stinky thing. There's incense going up, and there's, there's smoke coming up, and there's 
cows and, and, and bulls being, being killed everywhere and being slaughtered and, and all those things. So God is, there's really a, a play on words here, painting a picture. He says, what you think? This, this smells good to me? It's an abomination. It's repulsive. Oh, you think keeping your calendars with these holidays, new moon and Sabbath, that's a monthly and a weekly worship service, the calling of convocation, like, like special forms of gathering, the solemn assemblies. You think that they're, they're, they're awesome? He says, I cannot endure wickedness in solemn assembly. What you keep in your calendar to celebrate as a holiday, your little, you know, Christmas service, you know, you got, you got your Easter service, and then you got um, Palm Sunday now, right? Right before we, and then you got Good Friday service and, and Thanksgiving Day service, all of those things. And then your Sabbaths, you know, your weekly services. I can't endure it, God says. They're appalling. This special formal gatherings, you know, the conferences that we all look up on YouTube and stuff, or we pay hundreds of dollars to go to, as if they're supposed to be some kind of purer worship. God says, I can't endure that. I can't comprehend them because they're mixed with sin and deception. I cannot endure wickedness and solemn assembly. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I can't comprehend it. How can I see wickedness and iniquity in this weekly gathering and this monthly gathering and this, this holiday service and all of these things? I can't comprehend those two things because they're mixed with sin and deception and moral failure and hypocrisy even. Verse 14. My soul hates your new moon. I mean, God is like talking as if he has a soul like us. But it's to show us how deeply Impure worship affects God. Not necessarily affect God. I'd scratch that, actually. It's like how, 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 how deeply it is a, a, an abomination to Him. Is there a source of trouble and unhappiness? They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of patiently carrying this heavy load of impure worship. Just every time that they come with this impure worship, by the way, God is not smiting them right there on the spot, which he did in the wilderness. But each time, he's, he's just, bearing, just bearing with them patiently. So imagine a person that, that's constantly calling you out of, your, out of your name, constantly sinning against you, and you continue to forgive them. Every time you forgive them, 
there's like you're you're paying the price for their sin, right? Forgiveness is kind of like paying the price. And then you just you're just adding more and more and more and more, and then you eventually get so tired. There's even a saying, the straw that broke the camel's back, right? There's one straw can't break a camel's back unless you have plenty of straws. That kind of burden, that's the imagery God is. All this impure worship that you're bringing to me, I'm tired of it. I'm, it's been a burden. Every week, every month, you, every season you come and I'm just patiently carrying this heaviness that you bring to me. That I didn't even ask you. That I don't even know what it is. To the core of God's essence, He hates it. That's a strong word, isn't it? God saying, I hate something? See, the issue is Israel should have known better. They had the word of God revealed to them. They had the law. They should have known better. They have priests and they were doing this. They should have known that Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 15.22, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. They should have known this. They had their, this is actually Samuel talking to the first king of Israel who, who wasn't the greatest king, who the kingdom was snatched away from. But they had the word of the greatest king that they're so proud of. That even to this day, his name rings out. David, look at what he says in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would have given it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings? But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You will not hate that kind of thing. They should have known better. They had this right in front of them, as clear as a day. So God's verdict of impure worship is justified clearly. One more. They had his son, the wisest man. Maybe David wasn't wise enough. Even Psalm 51, he wrote as a result of him, you know, sinning with Beersheba and then killing her husband and all of that. That's a response to that. It's... So he wasn't wise enough. But his son, the wisest man, the richest king to ever live, King Solomon, writes this. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. But the prayer of the upright is a delight. But they thought, just going through the motions of worship could satisfy God. If they just did just enough. Or maybe even a little bit more than enough. They thought that just going through the motions were, were, was enough for God. They forgot what Moses taught them, who they claimed to follow all the way up to Jesus' time.
They forgot what he said not to do. And we saw this, by the way, in last week in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 32. Whatever I'm commanding you, you shall be careful to do, and you shall not add to it or take away from it, right? So they're, they're, they're like, okay, we're not taking away from it, but we're going to add more than what God expects. That doesn't work for God. Who asked you to do this? completely forgot. And they completely forgot that God doesn't only see what's, what we do on the outside. God sees the, not just the outward appearance of things, but He searches the heart. We see here in, in, in Psalm... Oh, where did I go? Maybe it's not on here. First Chronicles chapter... 28 verse 9. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to it. God talks about Solomon. He says, For Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. That's who God, this is, this is the side of God. He doesn't just see the outside, the outward appearance of things, but he searches all hearts. He understands every intent of the thoughts. So they thought just them doing this was going to be acceptable. They forgot what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. When Yahweh saw that every intent of the thoughts of man, of his heart, right? God doesn't just see what you do on the outside. God sees what your intentions and motivations are. He sees the heart. And that's it. I hear that a lot. I, I think more than I actually want to hear it. I have really good Christians saying to justify their behavior. This very thing. You know, God knows my heart. To which I usually think in my mind, I seldom say that out loud. Do you know your heart? How deceptive it is? Do you know what God says about the human heart? And Jeremiah? That is extremely and exceedingly wicked above all things who can know it is sick like i don't know my heart and if god can see my heart because i know one thing about my heart i determined to do one thing and you'll catch me doing the opposite the next day because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart is what we speak, what we do things, what we think about, right? So uh, me saying, hey, God knows my heart, it's like saying, God knows my inner, most wicked motivations that caused me to sin against them as a justification. That's not a justification, really. But I digress. Getting back to our text in verse 15, God tells his people, when you try to reach out to me, so when you spread out your hand in prayer, when you try to really try to stretch out, imagine that, 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 that picture, right? When you try to reach out to me with your hands, I won't look in your direction. I will hide my eyes from you. It's like, I don't see you. What? Right? That's, that's the image. Like you become invisible to me. 
when you try to reach out to me. And in case, verse 15 again, in case you, you make a bigger, more powerful, like numerous requests, right? Look, look, look down to verse 15. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, which you will, right? If God is not, if you feel like you're invisible to God, what, do you, what are you supposed to do? Just ask more, like, hey, I'm over here, guy. Yeah, I'm over here. I'm over here. Look at me. Look at me. I'm trying to reach you. So it's as if God knows that's what happens. So indeed, even though you multiply prayers, in the case that you make this bigger, more powerful, numerous requests and appeals and petitions, which you will, because I'm not looking in your direction, you're invisible to me. I don't even pay attention to you. I will not hear. I will not listen. So like not only I'm doing this, I'm also doing this. La 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 la. I can't hear you. I can't see you. But why, God? Why would you do some cruel th stuff like this? I thought I was worshiping you rightly. Answer? Last line in verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. Your prayers and you trying to reach out to me with this, with your hand trying to touch me and, and grasp, get a hold of me is going to fall blind eyes and deaf ears because the hand that is stretching out to me is not clean. And it's not COVID. You didn't, didn't just sneeze into your hand and try to reach out to me. It's bloody. That's the image that he's painting. What is he talking about? What kind of blood? I mean, look down to verse 21. He lists them off. Verse 21. <laughs> he says, Israel had justice once upon a time, but now it has murderers. So his people have committed murder, bribery, you see that, robbery, verse 23, thieves, everyone who loves bribe, extortion, idolatry in verse 29. All of that marred in their hands, and yet they try to reach out to him. So God says, I won't listen or hear you. It's all worthless. It's all in vain. Which, by the way, is consistent to his character and his word. Because Psalm 66, verse 18, says, If I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If there's any wickedness in my heart, God's ears are not, are not here. And God doesn't hear. And here's the beauty of God's word and the irony of it. In John chapter 9, 31, the Pharisees who are persecuting Jesus and they, they're, they're trying to ask him, they're like, oh yeah, we know. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Like, duh. 
Like, you know who you're talking to? But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, then he listens to them. So they, they knew this. By their own testimony, we know that they knew this. And you know that you know this. And yet, they try to approach him, thinking that they can harbor wickedness, hide it, and then come before him and pretend as if they are giving him pure worship. This is God's verdict. This is his word. It's not mine. I didn't make this up. It's right there. Hear the word of Yahweh. This is his word. This is his verdict. He then gives them, again, the beauty of this passage. As I was reading it, I was so, so, like, so fascinated by it. If God just gave us this verdict and the chapter ended just like that, then it's like, okay, we get it. We're sinners. Yeah, I, I, was, I was doing something last night and I'm here this morning. Here I am to worship or we give thanks. Oh, God, singing all of this. Like, even in the moment that I'm listening to you right now, my mind is wandering and it's going somewhere else. Yeah, this is impure. Wow, I'm convicted. Yes. But what? Give ear to the law, the instruction of God. God gives them an instruction on what pure worship looks like. Verses 16 and 17. What God requires from you, Isaiah says, is that you clean yourself up. Verse 16, wash yourselves. This is, by the way, clean yourself up is not just, it's, it's a language of taking a bath. Not going and washing your hands, maybe with soap and maybe without. That's not the language of that. It's not just use hand sanitizer. This is a language in the Hebrew that implies bathing with a cleansing agent. Not just dust yourself off, but wash yourself and purify yourself totally. Everything about you. Make yourself pure from sin and guilt and greed and any other undesirable thing that God detests. Do you want to have pure worship? Do that. That's the instruction of God. Then he says, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. He says, change the direction of your life by abandoning, taking off, removing this concrete, tangible evil, right? We're not just talking about evil and that we kind of just think about, you know, that, that, that sin that Jesus bore on, that we sing about. No, no, no. Like the tangible, visible, ag ugly, moral failure that exists in your daily life that you practice each day. Before God, by the way, God is seeing this. This is why it says, remove this before my eyes. Like their evil deeds is before his eyes.
Say, remove that. And remember, his sight goes beyond actions. He sees our intentions, our thoughts, our motives. And he adds, to purely worship God, you must put an end. Cease to do evil. Put an end to to be displeasing to God by your actions. Isaiah tells him in chapter 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Then Isaiah continues in verse 17, positively, learn to do good. Pure worship comes from knowledge and skill, attaining knowledge and skill that enables you to actually live, act, and behave in a proper and satisfactory way that God will be pleased. Pure worship that God desires from you requires the seeking justice. It requires you to execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. This intentional seeking after of God's standard of justice that is free from self-interest, free from bias, free from deception or favoritism, one that would work itself out in actions to others that are least favorable in society, right? This is why the orphans and, and, the, and the widows come into play. He's not just saying just open up a bunch of orphanages and uh, like have like widow centers everywhere. It's, it's the marginalized. Out of that seeking after of God's standard, you would actually notice and care for one another, even those who are least favorable. You won't show favor. You won't take bribes. You won't commit murder by being angry at one another. And James picks up on this and says, hey, pure and undefiled religion before our God? You want to know that? What, what it is, is this, to visit the orphans or and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's pure worship. So James picks up on this very thing. And Paul picks up on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Here's the catch. I have three minutes. The verdict is true. You agree? That we have impure worship before God? That our thoughts and our deeds and our speeches, if God was to put everybody's business out there, when we come to worship Him, when we come before His presence, it's impure. Amen? So God's verdict is true for all of us. And His instruction is clear. What does He require us to do? Clean yourself up. Seek after Him wholeheartedly. Be intentional about having a relationship with Him. That's clear. Right? 
Here's the catch. It's virtually impossible for us to do that. It's impossible to clean yourself up and make yourself pure. I mean, abandoning your evil desires and putting an end to all your sinful ways? I mean, how hard is that? I can barely abandon YouTube for more than 25 minutes before I start reaching and I start itching all my phone at. And then it takes me left or right, whichever direction it wants to, right? It's, it's hard to abandon that evil desire. It's, it's virtually impossible. Learning to reach God's standard of purity by yourself is unimaginable. I mean, God is holy. He's not just holy, but He's holy, holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy to the, to the third degree, to the superlative. And he says, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Be perfect. Perfection is his standards. That's unfathomable. That's unimaginable. So he says in verse 18, come now. Let us reason together. The language for reasoning together is it has a sense of a judge in a courtroom giving a verdict or giving a decision of the court. Here's the decision of the court. Yes, your worship is impure. Yes, you have clear instructions on how to make it pure. And I know that you can't achieve it in any of yourself. So come, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Not says Manny, not says Isaiah, not says Paul or Peter, James or Moses. God himself says this. Though your sins are like scarlet, here's again a playoff word, scarlet, red, blood. Even though you have defiled my presence with impure worship, even though you're incapable of giving me the pure worship in and of yourself, even though your guilt is like crimson and scarlet, bloody hands, they will be white as snow. They will be like wool. They will be cleansed and made pure in my sight. As if it was naturally pure, right? That's why the snow and wool, like snow, when, you, when it falls naturally, what color is snow? White. It's naturally white. And wool, before they dip it and dye and make it all kinds of different colors, it's white, it's pure. As if it was naturally... As if you are naturally sinless. Even though you are completely and utterly sinful and dirty and impure and incapable. You'll be made as if you naturally are pure. 
That's the judgment of the court. How? I mean, you've been coming to church, but now you, uh, you already have made the connection. With our scripture reading in Hebrews 9. By the one who Isaiah would talk about in chapter 53, verses 4 and 6, where he says, Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through our transgressions, for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Who Isaiah would say, about him, by his wounds we are healed. Through whom, who was said about Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The one who John the Baptist would look upon him as he's walking into the river Jordan and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who Paul refers to when he says in Titus 3 and 5, he saved us. Not by works, not by the multiplication of sacrifices, not the blood of bulls or rams or goats, not by trampling and walking all over one another so that God can hear us with our bloody hands. Not by our actions, not by works. Which we did in righteousness. But according to His mercy, the judge looks upon us in our pure worship and our ability to follow His instructions with mercy, through the washing. Hear the language. You'll be washed. You'll be white as snow. You'll be made like wool. The washing of regeneration, Paul calls it in Titus 3. And the renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how you purify your worship. Through Christ, the Son. Through Jesus Christ, is how you purify your worship. It is through Christ Jesus that God will receive pure worship. Pure worship of the Father only comes through the Son, by the Spirit. It doesn't come by how Sunday attendance is or how many Bible studies you follow. That's not pure worship. Pure worship those things are important, by the way. Don't, don't hear me say, so don't come next Sunday or don't come to Bible study. Don't hear me say that. But the heart of the matter, what purifies it, 
His pure worship of the Father is accomplished through the Son by the Spirit. So I'll leave you with this verses 19 and 20 in our text. Are you willing and obedient? Will you be willing and obedient? Or you rebel and refuse? My prayer is that you are willing and obedient to present pure worship whereby you can eat the best of the land and not be eaten by the sword of Yahweh. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our sovereign God and Father, and the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ, we come to you with thanks and gratitude for what you have done. Though our sin was like scarlet, our iniquities were like crimson, our guilt was ever before you, our worship is mixed with impurity and syncretism. We thank you that you've made and washed it and cleansed it and made us white as snow and pure as wool by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So we come sprinkled with that blood to give you the honor and the glory and the worship through the regeneration and the washing of the spirit to give you worship that you would deem acceptable. Father, worship is not just about our Sunday service, but our entire lives, our entire identity is worship to you. So we ask that your spirit would lead us into true worship, spiritual worship, in every walk of life as we leave this place. Be with us, O Lord. Guide us, lead us, continue to purify us, convict us. We ask you these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.